Well, good morning. Let me, let me make mention of a couple things to you this morning. One is, uh, first of all, how many of you are going to be serving at Runner's Camp tomorrow morning? Well, good morning. Let me, let me make mention of a couple. Well, good morning. Let me, let me make mention of a couple things meaningfully with the church and our community. So this is an extraordinary opportunity and, um, to share the love of Christ with them. I hope you'll arise early and be full of the word and the spirit as you go to a bunch of overheated nine-year-olds. So uh, God bless you in that. Um, one of our elders, Greg Mathias, is on a mission trip with a, a number of students uh, from the seminary, he is leading a trip to far northwest fine dinnerware, and uh, he, uh, he's in a place I've been. It's not easy to get there. They spent the night in a yurt last night, so uh, pray for Greg this week if you think about it, leaving a really significant trip uh, to share the gospel with people who've never heard it before in, in that country. So we're very, very excited about that. Um, old friend is back. Ron Donhart and his wife Jan, a couple of their kids, wave Ron. Ron survived being a pastor at North Wake and lived to tell about it, and he's back to visit. So we thank God for you, brother. Uh, Ron's investment in our, in our church has borne much fruit over the years, much, much fruit. But I want to start today with something a little different. I would like to start with some art appreciation. Um, as you take that, if you take that drawing in and sort out what exactly it is, I think it, you should be able to discern that. Um, I'd like to know if you could draw that picture. Do you think you could draw that picture? Now, before you answer that, let me, uh, let me tell you the backstory to that picture or, or a picture much like it. Uh, there was this true story. A mother of a nine-year-old boy named Mark got a phone call in the middle of the afternoon. It was from teacher of her son's school. This is rarely good. Says to her, Mrs. Smith, something unusual happened today in your son's third grade class. Your son did something that surprised me so much that I thought you should know about immediately. The mother began to worry at this point. The teacher continued, nothing like this has happened in all my years of teaching. This morning I was teaching a lesson on creative writing and as I always do, I tell the story of the ant and the grasshopper. The ant works hard all summer, stores up plenty of food, but the grasshopper plays all summer and does no work. Then winter comes. The grasshopper begins to starve because he has no food, so he begins to beg. Please, Mr. Ant, you have much food. Please let me eat too. Then she says, I say to the boys and girls, your job is to write the end of the story. She says, your son Mark raised his hand. Teacher, may I draw a picture? Well, yes, Mark, if you like, you may draw a picture, but first you must write the ending to the story. And she says, as in years past, most of the students said the ant shared his food through the winter, and both the ant and the grasshopper lived happily ever after. A few children wrote, no, Mr. Grasshopper, you should have worked in the summer. Now I have just enough food for myself. So the ant lived and the grasshopper died. She says, but your son ended the story in a different way from any other child ever. He wrote, so the ant gave all of his food to the grasshopper. The grasshopper lived through the winter, but the ant died. She said, and the picture? At the bottom of the page, Mark had drawn three crosses. And so I would like to know if you can draw that picture. Not with, not with pen and ink, not even with crayons. 
I want to know if you can draw that picture with the life that you live. I would like to know, are you drawing that picture with the life that you live? A picture of love so unselfish that it would sacrifice for the good of another. Is that the picture you are drawing with your life? You know, today we look in on the back part of Acts, our study of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21. Paul is drawing this picture with his life. The, the rest of the book of Acts, it all focuses almost entirely on the apostle Paul and his life. And he's drawing this picture again and again and again. He's drawing the picture of sacrificial love in Christ who died for our sins and was raised on the third day. And so if you'll open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, I'll pray for us and we'll, we'll dive in there, okay? Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us now. Our disordered, disoriented, inward lives, we bring to you and ask for help. Help us. May your spirit take the word today and, and help us. When we are usually sleepy and inattentive, give us hearts and ears to hear, eager to hear today, God. Change us so that we might look more like your son. So with that prayer for mercy, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, I was teaching, doing some training at another church, which I rarely do in western North Carolina. And I, I don't even remember exactly what I was training the people about. As a group of their leaders, they wanted me to do something. I was, I was there doing whatever I was doing. But I do remember this one guy came up to me, and somehow missions had come up, and he came up to me and he said, I'm a missionary. I'm a missionary in Asia. And he said, I often go into North Korea. And I meet with believers there, and I disciple them. And he said, I'm going to take you with me. We're going to go into North Korea, and the people are going to listen to you teach. He said, just because you're white. I said, well, thanks. <laughs> thanks for the compliment. Um, and so I never followed up with him, and he never followed up with me, and I never had the chance to go to North Korea. But imagine if I did. So imagine I follow up with him, or he follows up with me, and uh, I come and sit down with you, and we're talking, and I say to you, you know, I feel compelled by God to go into North Korea, not as a tourist, but covertly into North Korea where it would be forbidden for me to go in and preach the gospel and go in and share the gospel with the people there and disciple the believers in the house churches that are secretly meeting in North Korea. And I said to you, I said, not only do I feel like I need to go, but I feel like the Spirit has told me that if I go, I'm going to prison for it. What would you tell me? Would you try to dissuade me? Larry, you could do more good out of prison than in. There have to be other ways. And if you did, should I listen to you? See, this is, this is almost exactly the scenario that the Apostle Paul is involved in in Acts chapter 21. Um, by the way, this is merely decorative today. The pointer has died. So if I'm a little more flamboyant with my screen changing... They're helping me in the back, and so I occasionally will, it looks like I'm sprinkling you with some kind of holy water. It's just a defective thing. Um, let's see. I want you to go back to a map. There you go. Thank you. Um, 
I do have a laser pointer, though, so if you fall asleep, I can still point you out, all right? I'm left with that today. Paul's on this third journey, right? It's nearing its end. You remember last week, he met with the elders from the city of Ephesus here in this place called Miletus. Acts chapter 20 has this amazing message that he delivers to them. And our passage begins today as he leaves those people, and he, and he has these words. If we can go to, there you go, thank you. He said, when, when he had parted from them, some of your Bibles reads, when he tore himself away from them, it was such a tearful departure. He set sail, he says, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And that's a really significant phrase. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, what is Paul supposed to do with that? He's already said, as we'll see in a minute, back a chapter before, he feels constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. What's what's he to do? watch, Watch what happens in the next couple of verses. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we went outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So, Paul goes on to Jerusalem. Even though, through the Spirit, these believers told him not to. He goes on. And so this, this is kind of the big elephant in the room that we have to deal with before we can move on. Was Paul being disobedient to the, Spirit, the Spirit's prompting and leading by going to Jerusalem? Okay. Um, and there's some insight, I think, that helps us in the next, the next passage as it unfolds. It says, we had, we had finished the voyage from Tyre. We arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. Okay, so they continue their journey, um, and they travel all this way over to Tyre and to Ptolemy, and they end up in Caesarea with Philip, and you can see how close they are to Jerusalem. They stay at the house of Philip the evangelist. You remember him perhaps from our earlier studies of Acts chapter 6. He's one of those seven guys picked um, full of the Spirit of God to serve the apostles. He's also the one who had that amazing encounter with that Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot. That's Philip. He has has four um, unmarried daughters who prophesy. So this um, this is like an ancient Greg Matthias. It's kind of kind of what this is like. And um, the prophecy, though, that, is, that this flows out of, uh, that the passage looks at, is not the ones related to his four daughters, but to a prophet named Agabus. So if we'll look at that next one, it says, uh, while we were staying for many days there, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt 
and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So we've met Agabus, the prophet, before. He, he occurred in, in, back in chapter 11 of Acts. And there, he's a prophet in that role as well. He predicts a famine. He brings the good news that there's a famine. And here he brings the good news that you're going to prison, Paul. So nobody wanted to be Agabus' friend at this point in time. He's kind of the Eeyore of prophets. Nothing but bad news is all we associate with this guy. But we see through him another warning from the Holy Spirit of the imprisonment and suffering that waits for Paul in Jerusalem. Paul said before that the Spirit was testifying to this in every city along the way. But it's interesting, in this case, the pleading for him not to go comes from the people there, not the Spirit. So the Spirit warns of the suffering, and the people, because they love Paul, they beg him not to go. And I think this is probably the best explanation for Paul's continuing his journey to Jerusalem in the face of these prophecies. There are a number of Bible scholars who feel like Paul is just being strong-headed and disobedient. But there are really no indicators in the passage that Paul's being disobedient. Nothing to make us think that, um, that, that has any real substance to it. In fact, there's actual language that seems to indicate that the Spirit wanted him to go to Jerusalem. Okay, Remember chapter 20? Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. Paul understood the Spirit wanted him in Jerusalem. If we flip the head of chapter to chapter 23, it says, The following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, and this is while he's in Jerusalem, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Which sounds an awful, like, awful lot like an endorsement of his ministry in Jerusalem by the Lord. And in our own passage... After they pleaded with him, in verse 14, since he wouldn't be persuaded, <clears throat> they ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done, as though they recognized that it could very well be and likely is the will of the Lord that he would go to Jerusalem. So it seems to me better to understand that in this instance where we just have that simple little statement, the fuller pictures are better descriptions, that that the warning comes from the Spirit and the pleading comes from people who just love Paul and don't want to see him suffer. Um, so it's not that he's being disobedient here. So that's the elephant that's in the middle of this discussion. Now that we've talked about that a little bit, the main point of the story really focuses in on Paul's unshakable resolve. Listen to verse 13 again. Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul is bent on going to Jerusalem. 
Why? Why is he so committed to going to Jerusalem? Well, at one level, for him, it's an act of obedience. We saw in chapter 20, he's constrained by the Spirit to go. And we just heard him say he's radically committed to the fame of the name of Jesus. And he would rather die than dishonor Jesus' name by not obeying the Spirit and not spreading the name of Jesus. And so at this point, as we sit in our air-conditioned church on a very hot day, it would be good for us to step out and be reminded of what we signed up for when we said yes to following Jesus. Okay. Let's go back to Luke's first writing, the Gospel of Luke, and listen to what Jesus himself says about what it means for you and me to follow him. Okay? This starts in Luke chapter 9. He said to all, Jesus did, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will, find, will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels." You flip your Bible a couple more pages to Luke chapter 14. Jesus again is speaking. Listen to what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation... And is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Okay. This is what it means for you and me to call ourselves disciples, to call ourselves followers of Jesus. This is what we signed up for. Okay. We will take up our cross and we will follow the crucified Messiah, whatever that asks of us. It does not mean that we signed up for a life of comfort and ease. Jonathan Stormont cites John Ortberg telling one of his amazing little stories. He says that the most, Ortberg says the most dangerous chair in the house is the easy chair. It's ergonomically designed to insulate us from ever wanting to move again. And it's good at its job. It convinces us that the best thing we can do is actually not much at all. One brand is actually called the Lazy Boy. Actually, it's spelled without the Y, as if that extra letter is just too much effort, he says. Okay. That's, our, that's our culture. That's, that's the American dream, isn't it? Tim Bascom wrote a book called The Comfort Trap, and he says something really insightful. He says, we are too comfortable to be spiritual. He says, we think we'll be able to pursue God better without danger or hardship, and yet it works just the opposite way. Nothing is more difficult than to grow spiritually when comfortable. And it was, after all, it was, that, it was the, young, the rich young ruler who went away sad after his conversation with Jesus because he had so many possessions. Why would Paul be willing to make such a great sacrifice, imprisonment, and even his life 
for the name of Jesus. Why? And I'm reminded every day as I walk into my office of the answer to that question. It's on Rob Craig's door. If you're in the offices, I encourage you to read this. It's a quote from Bill Hybels. It says, people who consistently spread grace are those whose hearts have been ravaged by it. Has your heart been ravaged by God's grace? See, Paul's had. Paul's heart has been ravaged by grace. And so as we read the final chapters of the book of Acts together in the coming weeks, Paul's going to tell his story again and again because he's been ravaged by the grace of God. His transforming relationship with Jesus fuels his desire that the name of Jesus should be told all over the world so people can hear. Ruth Haley Barton says she compares evangelism. She says it's an invitation to spiritual transformation offered by someone who can bear witness to that transformation in their own life. She goes on to write, mission cannot be discerned without formation, nor can mission be sustained without an ongoing commitment of transformation in Christ's presence. She's trying to say what John wrote so plainly in 1 John 4. We love because He first loved us. When was the last time, unconstrained, you sat down and just reflected on the grace that God has lavished on you such that you should be called a child of God? You just sat and you thought, And you marveled. And you may have wept and you may have worshipped and you wanted to speak of it to someone. When was the last time that there was space in your world to ponder what that meant? What it means to you? And how that is needed by the people around you? See, this is the fuel that underlies the sacrifice that Paul makes for the name. Paul's example here is that if you've been ravaged by this kind of grace, you want to honor the one who has bestowed it upon you. Paul's example also has something to say to us about God's will and suffering. And what it says to us is if you walk in God's will, you're almost guaranteed to suffer it is extremely likely that you will suffer if you follow Christ. You should expect that and be growing an increasing willingness to suffer and sacrifice for Jesus' name. And again, that happens as we grow our love for Christ and protect it from these lesser competing loves like the love of comfort and pleasure and and stuff. When suffering does come to you and sacrifice does come your way because you follow Christ, it may not make much sense to those who love you. Parents who love you may not understand why you want to take your family vacation and go down to the DR with Noah. Why would you take your family to Haiti? That really doesn't seem wise. They may not understand why you would want to move your family for the summer to Rome, 
just to be around a little church and help it flourish like Glenn and Christy are about to do. Or to leave or to leave your family and go to far northwest China with a group of people so that you can talk to people about Jesus there. Can't you do that here? There are people who need Jesus here. I remember when I went on my first mission trip, I was in high school. And um, I need to go back to a period of history before many of you were born. There used to be a thing called communist Europe where the eastern part of Europe was communist. You can read about it in old books. Um, I was actually alive then. Um, they had just sliced bread and invented indoor plumbing, and Europe, part of Europe was communist. And, uh, and I had the opportunity to go spend my summer uh, in one of those communist countries. Um, it meant going in covertly with, um, with crew, and then I would have a chance to do evangelism and discipleship with... Uh, high school and college students in that country. And I can still remember uh, sitting with my mom. My mom is a notorious slow talker. My kids, it's the marvel at conversations between her and her sisters. It took them forever. Being from the Midwest, they're slow talkers. And she would say, Larry, isn't there something that you could do here? Like a camp for kids here or something? You know? She did not want me to go. She had no, I don't know if a missionary had ever set foot in our little church. She had no concept of it. But, you know, some of us must go. There are entire peoples, entire languages have never heard the story of Jesus. And the reason is they don't want that. Their governments are often opposed to that. You could be imprisoned if you go. Who is going to go? Some of us must go. And some of you I know have that irrepressible tug to go. And friends and family are going to try to talk you into taking up another position here in Wake Forest. There's lots of lost people here. But God is pressing you, constraining you by the Spirit to go where it is not safe, where afflictions wait. Now, just as a parenthesis, this is not a universal example for disregarding Christian counsel from people who love you. You want to be very careful about disregarding counsel. And in Paul's case, a couple of questions help us see that his situation is somewhat unique. And so you would want to ask the question, are these people over you or under you spiritually, in a sense? Because these are likely churches that Paul planted, and he was their, he was their elder. He was their apostle in his case. Um, he will deal very differently with counsel that comes to him from the elders in Jerusalem. We'll see in just a minute. So are they over you or under you, the people that are giving you these counsel? Are they, are they your elders or are they your friends? That may make a difference in how you feel about persevering in that. But the second thing is, does, this, does your disregard for their counsel lead you to greater comfort and ease or greater sacrifice in the name of Christ? That can be telling as to why you want to disregard someone's counsel. Anyway, in verse 15, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. At last, Paul is coming to Jerusalem. And with some of the disciples from Caesarea, they went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus. 
As near as I can tell, based on the historical research and genealogical work I've done, this is the great, greatity great granddaddy of Jake Manesson, one of our pastors. Right there in the Bible. They lodged with him, and then when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present after greeting them. He related one by one the great things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So Paul's third missionary journey is now over. Okay? He's back in Jerusalem. And the reception there initially is very positive. They genuine re- there's genuine rejoicing by the elders in Jerusalem, Jewish believers, of the good work that God had been doing through Paul among the Gentiles, that is, the non-Jewish believers. And they share in turn with him the great work of God in bringing many Jews to believe in Jesus as the Messiah as well. Okay? So everybody's happy, much rejoicing. So far, so good. And in verse 20, we continue, these new believers, these Jewish believers, they are all zealous for the law, Paul, the elders tell him. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So there are a series of accusations being made against Paul that he is telling the Jews out there who've been dispersed amongst the Gentile lands where he's been, that he's telling the Jews there not to follow the law of Moses or circumcise their children, which was a huge deal to Jewish people. And it's important to realize that these were false accusations against Paul, that Paul did teach what the Jerusalem council back in Acts 15 had decreed, that Gentiles did not have to become Jews to follow Jesus as the Messiah. But nowhere did he teach that Jews had to become Gentiles to embrace the Messiah. John Polhill, in his commentary, writes about this, and it's helpful, so I'll share it with you. He says, There's certainly no question that Paul argued strongly against seeing circumcision as a guarantee of salvation. It could be no substitute for faith in Christ. See Galatians 5 and 6. Consequently, he adamantly opposed circumcision of his Gentile converts, but there's no evidence he ever encouraged Jewish Christians to abandon the practice, and there's considerable indication to the contrary, which is why, for instance, he had Timothy circumcised. He says the same can be said for Paul's attitude towards the law in general. He rejected flatly the supposition that the law could be a means of salvation. He saw faith in Christ, not law, as the sole basis for one's acceptability to God. He adamantly opposed anyone who sought to impose the law on his Gentile converts, and this was very much within the spirit of that Jerusalem conference in Acts 15. But there's no evidence that he urged Jewish Christians to abandon their ancestral law. And Acts would indicate that he himself remained true to the law in his own dealings with Jew. In short, Paul saw one's status in Christ as transcending the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Being in Christ neither required that the Gentile become a Jew, nor that the Jew cease to be a Jew. 
So in light of these false accusations that are being made against Paul, the elders have a proposal. It starts in verse 23. Do therefore, they tell Paul, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. This, thus all will know that there is nothing in you that uh, what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Okay? So this may well have been <clears throat> an Old Testament practice called a Nazarite vow or something similar to it. It's a rather costly expression of Jewish devotion and worship where men offered sac- various sacrifices and set themselves apart unto God. And so they are proposing that Paul, who was a Jewish Christian, that he participate voluntary, voluntarily in these very Jewish acts of worship as an expression of his love and respect for the law of Moses. Now the elders continue saying in verse 25, As for the Gentiles who believe, the non-Jews... We have sent a letter, this is a reference back to Acts 15, with our judgment that they should do these things. Abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And these things are placed on them, not so that they would worship like Jews, but so they can worship with Jews. The purpose was to protect the unity of the church, which was now multiracial, right? Not just Jews. But now Gentiles, non-Jews from different lands with different cultures of different races were coming to Christ. And they make significant allowances for different cultural expressions of worship of Jesus from these very different Jewish and Gentile cultures. So in verse 26, Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be filled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul submits to their plan. He does what the elders believe is wise for him to do because they are, in a sense, over him. And he is willing to submit to their leadership, even though there's a sense in which he didn't have to. Paul had been living among Gentiles, likely eating Gentile food and living like a Gentile. That was his pattern. In 1 Corinthians 9, he writes this. He says, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. All things... To all men. And so Paul, though he is free to worship as he sees fit, he surrenders that right in 1 Corinthians for the purpose of helping people come to know Jesus. Here in Acts, it's to protect the unity of those who have come to know Jesus, to protect the unity of the body of Christ across racial lines. Paul is willing to let go of his freedom to worship however he chooses. We would say to lay down our rights in order to protect the unity of the body of Christ. And he seems to have a special concern about unity across racial lines. Whenever you read about Jews and Gentiles, that's what you're reading about. You're reading about racism. 
about racial and cultural differences bumping into each other in the church. And Paul is all too aware how racial divides divide the church. And so he's taking some extraordinary steps. I'll try to explain it to you in a moment about how that, to protect the church from that. But you know, you, you all know this is not something that, that the church struggled with long ago and now we're past it, right? There are very few things that divide the body of Christ in a community than race. There's a lady, she's, I believe she's an assistant professor over at Duke University. She wrote a fascinating blog entitled, Everything I Learned About Racism I Learned in the Church. Her name is Christina Cleveland, and she says uh, in that, here's an excerpt. She says, every summer my mom would sign us up for vacation Bible school uh, at local churches so we could experience God in diverse settings. The summer I turned six, we attended VBS at an all-white church in a neighboring city. During recess, my brother and I were so engrossed in our tetherball game, we didn't hear the teacher calling us to return to the classroom. So exasperated, she yelled at the top of her lungs, Get in here, niggers! She says, being six and all, I had no idea what the word nigger meant. Um, I just knew that it referred to me and that it was negative, so I ducked my head in shame and ran toward the classroom. She says, the teacher's words violently contradicted the VBS theme. God loves all the children in the world and made me question whether God's love was meant for me too. She writes as a millennial. She's a young professor. She's in our area. She says, I've lived most of my years in our so-called post-racial American church, yet my earliest and most painful experiences of racism have all occurred in the church at the hands of sincere Christians. See, Paul does not want race to divide the church. He's taking some extraordinary steps to make sure that that does not happen. See, the reason, one of the reasons he's so compelled, in addition to all that we've shared about Paul, longing for the name of Jesus to be known amongst the, the Jews in Jerusalem and longing to obey the Spirit, he is coming to Jerusalem for another reason as well. He's bringing an offering. Look in Romans 15, here it is. Uh, at present, Paul says, he's writing this in the book of Romans. He says, uh, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid, money, to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, the Gentile reasons where he's been working, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the Jewish saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. See, Paul is showing up with representatives from these Gentile churches, carrying an offering for the poor in need in this primarily Jewish church in Jerusalem as a protection of the unity of the body of Christ. He must go to Jerusalem for the sake of the name of Jesus, that the unity of church will not be divided around matters of race. Now, you need to know that I grew up in the Midwest in an all-white little farming community in the middle of a cornfield. I don't know if I met someone of color other than my adopted Vietnamese friend uh, until I went to college 
that we, we, we were isolated. And so I did not grow up with experiences like, like this blogger shares with us of racism and discrimination. Um, it's a world that I, I was unaware of. But some of you have grown up in it. You have experienced it and you have tragically wielded it. And I could use some help protecting the body of Christ in Wake Forest from this kind of division. And I wonder if some of you whom God has burdened your hearts for this might raise up and help our church, our church, the church in Wake Forest be one. Because let's be honest. The inflammatory incidents that are happening other places in the country that expose institutional and structural and even volitional racism, they're coming here. Something's going to happen here in our community. Will we be one when it comes? The larger question is, are you willing to lay down your rights to protect and strengthen the unity of the church to give up having your way in order to exalt and honor the name and the fame of Jesus. Not you. Not me. Why Jerusalem? That's why Jerusalem. Luke has another scheme in telling us about Paul going to Jerusalem and highlighting these things. Paul went to Jerusalem to suffer because Jesus did. Bob Deffenbaugh writes in his commentary, he says, Like Jesus, Paul set his faith toward Jerusalem, knowing full well what waited him there. In Luke 9, it says of Jesus that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Deffenbaugh writes, Paul, like Jesus, would be falsely accused in Jerusalem and put on trial. Paul, like Jesus, would be pronounced innocent and yet not released. Paul, like Jesus, would be urged not to go to Jerusalem by his most devoted followers, yet he would go anyway. Luke is seeking to show us that Paul is like our Lord. See, Paul Paul is drawing a picture with his life. He's drawing this picture. He's drawing a picture of the cross. And he's following Jesus. Who loved sacrificially for the good of another. Can you draw that picture? Are you drawing that picture with your life? That when Jesus calls you to sacrificially follow him, wherever that means, whatever that means, in your marriage, in your home, at your work, around the world, is this the picture that you are drawing with your life? Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, have mercy upon us as your people. God, I know that you are ashamed of the pictures we draw a lot of days. They are all about us. 
And yet this morning you show us through our brother Paul that there is another life. Through the words of Jesus, we see that we are called to another life, a life of following Jesus, of being like Jesus. So Lord, let us drink deeply of the grace and mercy and love that you've given to us so that we might have, we might have motivation, we might have power to walk in this way. And towards that end, as your people, we remember together that on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this is, this is the blood of the new covenant, my blood, shed for the remission of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul would later warn the church in Corinth, don't come to this table and hold on to your prejudices. Don't come to this table all divided. Repent of your sin and come to this table. All you who are weak and heavy laden, your sins have burdened you this week, come to this table and commune with the one who is your sin bearer. Come to this table and worship and remember the depth and width and height and length of his love for you. Father, we come now seeking you, seeking your son by your spirit. May this be for us a moment of communion, just like we call it. That this might be a meal we share with, with Jesus, our Lord. And we might speak to him of our love for him as we remember this amazing love for us.